Well, we gather on a Sunday morning, not just to celebrate a dead Savior. We celebrate a risen Savior who is alive and alive forevermore and continues to do miraculous things in our midst. And we have a gentleman in our church, Lowell Jost, who uh, unfortunately uh, was diagnosed with prostate cancer uh, back in the spring and uh, went into the oncologist, all those kind of things. And uh, it wasn't looking good initially. And uh, we get to hear this morning the miracle that God has done. So Lowell, please come. Good morning. So first thing I got to do is correct the pastor. Okay. I had throat. Throat. Sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> throat, throat cancer. <laughs> <laughs> That's radically different, yes. <laughs> radically. <laughs> it's good I provided a little humor in a very solemn moment. Yes. All right. So I'm up here to thank people for praying for me. Um, I sat with a man, a doctor, last May, and he told me that if something wasn't done, I'd be dead in a year. And uh, that sort of takes the wind out of your sails. I uh, believe in the power of testimony, and I'm here to give my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the recognition and, and the uh, glory for healing me. Last, a week ago on Thursday, I had a PET scan, and last Tuesday, the doctor told me in one word, it's perfect. And I give the Lord the glory for all of that. I didn't deserve it. Amen. But he did it. Amen. Beautiful. You're not leaving without a hug. <laughs> well, we've been doing a uh, series on the book of Philippians uh, this fall. This is sermon number eight. And uh, next week we wrap up the series. And you might think that would be my last sermon at Ocean View, but you can't get rid of me that easily. We, uh, we actually pre-recorded uh, Christmas Day and New Year's Day. Pastor Dwight's going to be doing the Christmas Day service. And, uh, and then on New Year's Day, if you turn on YouTube, uh, you will get to hear me. So that will actually be my final sermon. Uh, a reporter was interviewing an old man on his 100th birthday. And they said, 100 years, this is amazing. What are you most proud of when you look back over your 100 years of life. And he said, you know what I'm most proud of? I don't have an enemy in the world. 
And the reporter said, that is such a beautiful thought. That is so inspirational. Wow, if only we could all live our lives like that. Yeah, added the hundred-year-old guy with a smile on his wrinkled face, outlived every last one of them. (laughs) Now, I'm sure that is exactly what the Apostle Paul daydreamed about. Because everywhere the Apostle Paul went, this really grumpy group of Jewish people who had become Christians was sure to follow. Acts 15, 1 through 2 describes them. It says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And all through the ministry, these people show up in every church that Paul plants, and it just drives him crazy. They are the anti-grace crowd. They are the people that say, no, you got to do all these things in order to earn God's favor. And now... One of Paul's favorite churches, this church in Philippi that he is writing this amazing letter to, all of a sudden Paul hears whispers and warnings that, oh no, this group is showing up in Philippi as well. And so Paul finally has enough. He's done with these people. And so we're going to pick it up, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. He says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by the Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. What a beautiful, amazing passage. But it's a bit shocking, isn't it, when we first read that first sentence. The Holy Apostle Paul calling people dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. First glance, it kind of seems a little bit beneath him. Forces us to ask the question, is all anger actually wrong? Now, a lot of anger is destructive, either to ourselves or to others, so that's not good anger, but there is actually anger that we're supposed to have. 
Think of young girls being forced into prostitution rings around the world. That should absolutely make us boil over with anger. Think of anti-Semitic racists who say terrible things about Jewish people. Should make us really angry. Criminals who commit horrible, violent crimes get a slap on the wrist, two years in jail. That should make us angry. There are things in this world that we should be upset about. And what the Apostle Paul is dealing with this in this passage is just as serious as those kinds of issues. Because actually Paul realizes what's at stake here is the whole future of the Christian faith. If the Apostle Paul doesn't stand rock solid against this kind of legalism, this idea that unless you do something the law requires, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved, then faith alone in Jesus Christ will never be seen as enough. The religious fundamentalists will win and the Christian faith will be relegated to a small Jewish offshoot group. Paul knows how important this is. What happens in all of the churches planted in those non-Jewish areas all over the Roman Empire will be the model for the next 2,000 plus years of church history. What is really at stake here is the fundamental difference between religion and the good news of the gospel. As pastor and author Tim Keller recently tweeted, he said, this is how religions work. If I obey, then God will love and accept me. That is exactly what these Judaizers are saying. If you obey the Old Testament law, everything from the dietary laws about not eating pork or shellfish to the command that all Jewish male babies must be circumcised, after you've done all those things, then God will love and accept you. Paul is standing up strong and saying, no, no, no. Christ has fulfilled the requirements of the law. It is through faith in Christ, taking him as your Lord and your Savior. That is how a person is saved, for this life and for the life to come. So Tim Keller summarizes the opposite. He says, how the gospel works. I'm loved and accepted, therefore I wish to obey. It makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? We've been telling you about an opportunity that we as a church have uh, coming up this week, actually. Thursday, we will be at the middle school here in Ladysmith, and then Friday at the high school. And God bless us with 300 pounds of free flour and uh, a huge amount of milk from Dairyland. And we're doing milk and cookie day at the middle school and the high school. Uh, Wednesday, our youth were here, and uh, they busted over over 200 cookies and uh, worked really hard, and there was parent volunteers and a whole bunch of people working hard. Yesterday, we did the same thing. Uh, we started at 10 in the morning, worked till about 2.30. So we're up to about 700 cookies. We need 1,000, so we got a little bit of work left to do. Uh, but God has blessed us with this, and it made me think, all these people that came and served and participated, they weren't doing it out of this sense of desperation, like, if I go make cookies, then... God will love me. No, it's exactly the opposite, isn't it? It's because of what Christ has done that we're filled with joy and want to serve and want to be a blessing in our community. That fundamental difference between religion and the gospel, it flips everything we do. 
Well, then the Apostle Paul, just kind of like a hockey fight. I was watching hockey the other night, and I love that moment where they, two players look at each other and they throw the gloves off. And they're like, all right, let's go. And that's what Paul has. He says, all right, you want to have a little showdown about who's the most Jewish and who could possibly qualify to be justified in those ways? Let me, let me go through the list here. Judaizers, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day as a baby. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul is saying, my ethnicity is pure. You can't get more Jewish than me. He's saying, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. I was an absolute stickler. I was part of the Pharisee party. I would go around trying to police other people keeping the law. He says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. When we first meet the Apostle Paul, he is actively persecuting the church. He oversees the death of Stephen, the very first Christian martyr. And he says, as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. Paul gets an A plus on his report card if you are trying to justify yourself by keeping the law. But Paul says this amazing statement. He says, if you are depending on all of those factors to make you loved and accepted by God, then sorry, it's not going to work. Love this verse. It says, but whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. When you and I make that decision to follow Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our Lord, then all of his goodness, all of his moral and spiritual perfectness is put onto us. The scholarly term is imputed righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus put onto us like clothes. That brings us to the absolute joyful mountaintop verse of Philippians 3.9. It says, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Back in 1990, a poll was conducted of over 7,000 uh, Christian youth in churches amongst a whole bunch of denominations in the United States. Southern Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, Episcopalian, etc., and they were asked some simple questions, whether they agreed with the following statements. And this was the very first poll question. It said, the way to be accepted by God is to try to sincerely live a good life. Do you agree or disagree? And the answer turned out to be more than 60% agreed. Aye, aye, aye. Poll number question number two. God is satisfied if a person lives the best life he or she can. Agree? Disagree? Depressingly, almost 70% agreed. Poll question number three. The main emphasis of the gospel is on God's rules for right living. And more than half agreed. That's the kind of stuff that makes pastors cry in their Cheerios and makes us lose sleep at night. It would be my great hope as I finish up 13 years here at Ocean View, that if someone came in and pulled this congregation, that we would get a big fat zero on every one of those questions. 
You can just humor me. Give me an amen. That'll be good. Okay. All right. Well, in our second point, Paul kind of moves from the starting line of salvation, and he moves to progress in the Christian life. We're going to pick it up, verses 10 through 14. Paul writes, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which for Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amazing verses. The Australian coat of arms. If you've ever seen a picture of it, we're going to show you one. And it pictures two creatures. You've got an emu, that big, huge, flightless bird, and a red kangaroo. And those two animals were chosen specifically for the Australian coat of arms for two reasons. Number one, they're both native to the Australian continent. They don't come anywhere else on earth originally. They're only from Australia. Now, it's 2022. They're in zoos all around the world, but originally you can only find them in, in Australia. The second reason, interestingly enough, is that both of those animals can only go forwards. They cannot go backwards. The reason for the emu is its three-toed claw or foot. This is hilarious. If an emu tries to step back, it will fall right over. It absolutely cannot support itself going backwards. And it's similar for the kangaroo. The reason they can't move backwards is because of their huge, long tail. And the Australian people love that imagery. That it's progress, it's moving forward, it's not regressing and going backwards as a society. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is telling us in this second group of verses. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward, forward to what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And you know what? If everything we talked about in point one is true, then we aren't weighed down by our sins, our past, our mistakes. We are actually freed up to move ahead, just like the emu and the kangaroo. We can only go forward as Christ followers. We get to live in the freedom of the good news of the gospel. What a beautiful thing. I think reminding us of our past failures and haunting us with our past failures is one of the strategies the devil uses to limit our effectiveness for the kingdom of God. If he can discourage us and cement the notion in our minds that we will never change or grow or progress in our faith, then he can ultimately get us to kind of just throw up our hands and go, ugh, it's way too hard, I give up. I'm not even going to try. How radically different is the path of following Jesus that Paul lays out in verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, 
becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. The joy, the fulfillment, both in this life and the life to come, is knowing Christ. Lowell just gave a beautiful testimony of how God healed him from cancer in his neck. There is lots of joy in this life as we worship, as we pray, as God gives us those Psalm 4610 moments, be still and know that I am God. And it will be pure, uninterrupted joy when we see Jesus face to face in heaven and then finally in the new heaven and the new earth. But Paul doesn't try to set up the Christian life as all rainbows and roses while we're here on this planet. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Following Jesus in whatever time period down through history is never a picnic. And that is really, really important to know. When someone is interested in in discovering the Christian faith, if we try to tell them you meet Jesus and it's all easy street from here on out, we're lying. In fact, following Jesus often makes things harder, doesn't it? You all of a sudden discover you are a salmon heading up the creek. The water's coming down and you're going the other direction. There's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of opposition. So Paul very realistically says, I know that part of following Jesus is participation in his sufferings. But, he says, the key is you got to keep your eyes on the prize. We need to keep our eyes on the prize and that is Jesus Well, Paul has set the bar really high for someone who follows Jesus. He's told us how they're supposed to think and how they're supposed to behave. And he ends this section by saying, if you need a living, breathing example of how to do this, follow my example. He picks it up in verse 15. Paul says, all of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. I think I should adopt that line for my girls, my children. If you think anything differently, God will make that clear to you. Your dad's always right. They would probably provide about a hundred examples where dad hasn't been right, but anyway, okay, never mind. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Joined Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. The Apostle Paul is and still is today an amazing example. The way he fearlessly went all over the Roman Empire, enduring 
crazy stuff, being beaten, being caught in the middle of riots, thrown in jail, run out of town, over and over and over, what he endured so faithfully and changed world history. Amazing guy to follow, amazing example. But Paul says, I want you to follow people's example. People whose hearts are fully sold out to Christ. He said, you need living, breathing examples right beside you. And I, I was challenged this week as I was preparing to just do the most quick survey of different areas of our world and think, has that been true since the days of the Apostle Paul? If you look at world history for the last 2,000 years, have Christians made significant differences in our world? First area I thought about was science. And Christians showed incredible groundbreaking leadership in science. People like Blaise Pascal, Nicholas Copernicus, Sir Isaac Newton, Galileo Galilei. In modern times, Dr. Sid Coop or Dr. Francis Collins. Amazing people who have pushed scientific endeavors forward. What about the arts? Well, the list is hugely long. Just to pick a few, the painter Rembrandt, Beethoven, Dostoevsky, the author T.S. Eliot, J.R. Tolkien. In modern times, the Japanese Christian artist Mako Fujimura. Artists like Johnny Cash, Bono from U2, so blatant about their faith. So did Christians make a difference in education? Well, you look across Canada and so many universities were founded by Christians. Places like Acadia University or McMaster, founded by Christian people. You look down in the States, all of the Ivy League university schools like Princeton and Harvard, all founded by Christian believers. And then you think about mercy and justice throughout 2,000 years of church history. Think of William and Catherine Booth who started the Salvation Army. William Wilberforce, the Englishman who dedicated his life to the abolition of slavery. George Mueller with orphan care. Martin Luther King Jr. with civil rights. Mother Teresa in the streets of India. Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision. Famous Christian once said, the identifying mark of the city of God is where citizens of the heavenly city become the very best citizens of the earthly one. C.S. Lewis said this, History shows that the people who did the most for the present world were the ones who thought the most about the next one. To be heavenly minded then is to be more earthly good, not less. And God puts a lot of great people on our path, doesn't he? None of them are perfect. All of them have flaws. But if we follow a person whose heart is fully captured by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then they are well worth following. So how does Paul end this incredible chapter? I love the way Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. The last two verses, 20 and 21. We're citizens of high heaven. We're waiting the arrival of the Savior, the Master, Jesus Christ, who will transform our earthly bodies into glorious bodies like his own. He'll make us beautiful and whole with the same powerful skill by which he is putting everything as it should be 
under and around him. Jesus is beginning the process of making you and I both beautiful and whole. He will fully complete the job when he comes back and we are resurrected, but for now, we are in process. So I want us to be encouraged, church, this morning. God isn't done with us yet. Amen? Ian, come and pray for us. Good morning. Please pray with me. Today's prayer is adapted from an ancient prayer from the Northumberland. That's uh, southern Scotland, uh, northern England. Christ is a light. Illumine and guide me. Christ as a shield, overshadow me. Christ under me, Christ over me, Christ beside me, on my left and on my right. Lord Jesus, we pray for the Ukrainian city of Kershaw. The Russian troops have just pulled out of this uh, uh, this week. This pro, uh, proud city used to be uh, 280,000 people, about the size of Nanaimo, I was thinking. People, and now, um, and now there are just over 10,000 people, so about the size of Ladysmith. Cold and starving, civilians left. We pray for the people as the cold winter temperatures begin in that city. We pray for the Ukrainian soldiers moving in and reclaiming the town as it was reportedly filled with landmines by the retreating Russian troops. We ask that you bring this terrible war of aggression to an end. This day be with me and without me, lowly and meek, yet all-powerful. Be in the heart of each to whom I speak, in the mouth of each who speaks unto me. Holy Spirit of God, each of us have many different relationships in our lives from spouses, family, co-workers, neighbors, and fellow classmates. We can maintain good relationships for a while on our own strength, but as soon as we get tired and stressed, they begin to break down. We truly do need your power, Lord. Holy Spirit, to empower us so that we can be loving, kind, and genuinely want the best for the person we are dealing with. This day be with, within me and without me lowly and meek, yet all-powerful. Christ is a light, Christ is a shield, Christ is beside me, on my left and on my right. Father God, we pray for the upcoming milk and cookie days at Ladysmith Intermediate, November 17th, and at Ladysmith Secondary on the 18th. This is your love in action to the kids of this town. We pray that you will use this event to foster a good, welcoming, and encouraging environment in each school. Even more than that, we pray that you will allow the students to be impacted, to ask why a church 
would go to so much trouble to do something really nice for them. We pray for Pastor Fernando and all who give out cookies and milk to have many significant conversations with these teenagers. We thank you for the cookie uh, making at Mercy Youth uh, on Wednesday night, 19 kids, four Kaleo students, and a number of adult leaders made 200 cookies for the event and enough chocolate chip uh, cookie dough for another 25 dozen. Thank you for the discipleship that is happening through the preparation for this event as students learn to love and serve in your name. We thank you for the adults who came out on Saturday and made hundreds and hundreds more of more cookies. It is important to put our faith in action, so let us let this be a discipleship movement for adults as well. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, amen.